Okay, good morning. Um, why don't you guys just take a moment whilst I get myself sorted to just have a wee chat with someone next to you. And if you want a question, what is the worst thing that you have spilt on yourself? There you go. Go for it. Um, yeah, good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, I'm just aware that I'm parachuting in in the middle of a series at the moment. I'm going to do something slightly different, although it all kind of ties in anyway. Um, but it's just been really cool to, to hear about, um, whilst I was in the UK, hear about how the series has been going and then here last week. And So yeah, that's really cool. Um, but yeah, parachuting in with something different today. Um, we're just going to look at discipleship. Um, and just the first thing I really wanted to do was acknowledge and honour the ways in which it's already happening in this church family. Um, this is not a, we need to do discipleship more. It's more like, hey, this is really, really cool what's already happening, and let's just keep pressing in. So that's the spirit in which I'm trying to speak in this morning. Um, and I'm really, really passionate about this topic. I, I did 11,000 words on it for my dissertation at university. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to read that out today. Uh, that would take about two hours. Um, yeah, um, but I'm really, really passionate about this subject, so we're just going to go for it, um, and I really hope this is helpful. So just as a reminder, um, we have, at the end of each gospel account, um, the last words Jesus gave to his disciples before he went back up to heaven, and I'm just going to um, read the version of Matthew of what Jesus says to them. And Jesus came and said to them, this is Matthew 28, 18 to 20, if, if you're wondering, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so just initially, what are the, the questions that come up? I mean, what does this mean? What does it mean to make disciples? Because we don't believe in, in manipulation and control. So how do you make someone a disciple? Like, What's even going on here? What does disciple mean? Where does this word come from? Why is Jesus even using the word disciple? And I wonder, how would you answer those questions? Imagine if you had a, an annoying version of me, or even more annoying. Um, how would you answer those questions? Do you feel confident about asking, answering those questions? And is it something that maybe is on your mind at the moment or you've reflected on previously? And it's totally okay if, if those sort of questions I just asked, you're like, uh, nope, 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 nope. Okay, that's cool. Um, if you have thought about it, well, I know there's plenty of people actually here who have thought about it a lot. But wherever you're at, we're just going to go deep in this. Um, and the starting point is kind of picking up on what is the context Jesus was born into. Um, he's born into a Jewish culture, obviously, and we're just going to go for that there, and, and where is discipleship in the, in the Jewish culture? Because when we open the New Testament, we're already kind of entering into a story that's already been going on for ages and ages and ages. Cool. So, Jewish culture, discipleship. Um, like I said, it's been occurring for centuries before the time Jesus was born in, in different cultures, nations, nationalities, and it kind of got to a stage where um, this word disciple was, was meaning someone who was... Uh, a learner, a pupil, an adherent. But I think by the time uh, Jesus came along and he was born, there was another aspect to it, and that was follower. Um, follower of a person, a follower of a movement or a type of belief system. 
And then starting at some point before Jesus was born, I mean, we, we don't really know for sure, but I would personally say maybe in the, I don't know, 100 to 200 years before he was born, in Jewish uh, culture and society, there was a rise in these, these people who were scholarly interpreters of the written Torah, i.e. what we know as the Old Testament now. And they were there to interpret. They were there to teach. Um, and they had real, real um, special status in society. They were really honored. And they were given this title of teacher or rabbi. And it was a real honorary position. And we know that some of the names of these, these rabbis, we know that there's a chap called Hillel. We know that there's a chap called uh, Shammai. We know there's a chap called Gamaliel. And these are like heavyweight teachers. They know their stuff big time. They would have been known. They would have been famous. Um, and we also know that they had disciples. And we know that uh, some of them had groups of disciples who were learning from these, these teachers, uh, even schools of disciples, not necessarily how we think of schools now. I think they said that Hillel had a potentially up to about 80 disciples following him, just in his daily rhythms, in his daily life, learning from him, hearing what he had to say. And we know that these disciples came to the rabbis to learn. The rabbis didn't seek out the disciples. That's a crucial, crucial point. We know that Paul made a journey um, from Tarsus to Jerusalem to learn under Gamaliel. We know that from Acts 22.3, uh, where it says he learned at the feet of Gamaliel, which is a very interesting phrase we'll get to in a moment. But I think one of the things I just really want to emphasize is that it was ordinary people going to learn from people who were extraordinarily capable of, of academic prowess, but also spiritual nous and, and, and respect in that sense. They had respect of the society. So people went to these rabbis, and there was no um, barriers in terms of money or societal hierarchy. You could just go and learn. There was academic and spiritual expectations, but you could go and you could learn. And this was, this was kind of a golden age of, of study and an explosion of this art of discipleship, this way of living. And so what was this way of living? What did it look like amongst the Jews? Um, a big emphasis on, on learning at the temple, um, just that, that community time at the temple, learning together but also in the daily life and the rhythms, learning outdoors, traveling with these rabbis as they went from village to village to teach. There was an intimacy as well. There's even a story of, um, and whether this happened or not, but it's kind of, it, it, we don't know for sure, it's, but it's getting at this, um, this, this whole aspect of intimacy and following the rabbi. There's a story of, of disciples even uh, trying to watch the rabbi go to the toilet to see how the rabbis would conduct themselves and how they would pray as they were going to the toilet. There's even uh, an account or suggestion that disciples tried to see how their, their rabbis would be with their wife and, and see how they would pray as they were with their wife. And so it's very bizarrely intimate, um, and I'm not recommending that for one moment. Um, <laughs> but it does give this extreme example of the intimacy. And there's even this chap who, I'm going to butcher the name probably, although, oh, no, actually, no, I'm not going to speak that out. I'm going to give this name a crack, and hopefully I don't butcher it. Um, there's a name of, uh, well, there's this, a Jewish rabbi called Yossi ben Yoza, who had this phrase that he's recorded as saying, and he was around in the second century BC. And he talked about how um, well, he was encouraging disciples to cover themselves in the dust of their rabbis as the rabbis traveled. And I wonder what picture that conjures up for you. I, I just picture a rabbi walking ahead and these keen disciples walking behind, almost like tailing their every steps and just being caught up in the dust from the sandals or, or the jandals. Um, as, as they're following the rabbi and intently listening to what he has to say. Some would say also that actually that phrase is pointing to a practice 
of, that we know is definitely occurring later on, of sitting at the feet of a rabbi. So being caught up in the dust from his feet um, and taking up a position which was commonly known as sort of a discipleship pose or posture, being sat and learning from the rabbi. Just a side note on that. Um, again, actually, just bring us back. Paul learned at the feet of Gamaliel. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Think of Mary and Martha when Jesus is with them. Martha's busy in the kitchen, but what's Mary doing? She's sat at the feet of Jesus. She's not just being with Jesus, although she is. She is taking up the disciple position with Jesus. Even when Lazarus, um, her brother, dies, and it's this emotionally charged electric moment when her brother is dead, Martha's gone out to see Jesus as Jesus gets to the village. Mary waits. And then when Mary goes to him, she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. Is that grief? Undoubtedly. But I think she's taking up the discipleship pose as well. So that's just a very brief picture of what's happening in Jewish society. And so just wanted to give that as a bit of context. What's Jesus coming into? And Jesus comes along and, and man, he has authority. Even in this culture of Hillel and Shammai and Gamaliel, uh, Mark and Matthew both comment on how the people noticed that, they had a th- that he had authority that the rabbis did not have. The teachers of the law didn't have. He was the rabbi. And Jesus sets this pattern of discipleship in a new way. He brings a slight twist to it. And we're just going to look at that now. Because after what I've just said, it's like great history lesson, but so what, Seb? Like, how is what I've just said relevant to you? Well, hopefully it will be. But it's just setting some context of what Jesus is coming into. And I, I just, the reason why I said all that is because when we hear this word discipleship, which is kind of a foreign word to Western culture, my hope is that we'll just have it, the word will trigger a load of understanding and a rich depth to understanding, of understanding. So what I'm going to do is just going to go through quick fire some ways that Jesus went about discipling. And I hope that as of just chucking them out there, sort of scattergun approach, that some of these really connect and, and, and lodge in your mind. And then I'm just going to come and land on two key points. And there's so much you could say about discipleship. I mean, there's, there's theses and sermon series. So we're just, just going to chuck a few things out there. And I think the first thing, um, just on Jesus' model of discipleship, I want to emphasize, is Scripture. You can't do discipleship without Scripture. Look at how Jesus treated Scripture. Look at how Jesus viewed Scripture. It's massive. And that's all I'm going to say on that one. Next point. Um, Walking and talking. Jesus, again, took something that was happening in the Jewish model of discipleship, and he totally just ran with it, or walked with it even, Um, Look at the moments in the Gospels where it says Jesus and his disciples went to X. They went to Bethlehem or went to Galilee or Capernaum, wherever. And I I just realized that, well, actually, someone preached on this a while ago, and I heard them, and I would just read those and be like, yep, cool, good journey, cool. Uh, But the preacher said, what was it like to walk with Jesus? I think the example they used, it was about 80 miles or however many that is in kilometers. But some of these distances were over 100 kilometers that the disciples were walking with Jesus. What was it like to talk with Jesus? What was it like to sit around the fire with Jesus? What was it like to, um, to just, I don't know, wait on God's provision with Jesus? Did they take any money or food with them? There's something so special about walking and talking and journeying with people. Whether it's going on a walk and walking the dog, or actually going on a journey or a missions trip, there's something really special about that. And 
integrally linked was these, th that intimacy in discussions. Yeah, there would have been the laughter and you know, maybe John tripped James over at a few points and there was a laugh, I don't know, but there was that intimacy, that intimacy of talking. Food, that's gonna be a positive point. We all, I think we've all heard probably that food is key in discipleship. Uh, so I'm not gonna linger on this one, but just to throw something out there, Jesus used food to identify with people as a form of identification and, and accepting someone. So to just flesh that out a bit, uh, I'm gonna pick on the young people actually. Um, when you're at school, who do you eat your lunch with? Who is on their own? Who's being bullied? Who's the bully? Who's the kid who is maybe a bit smelly and getting teased for it? Who's being shunned because of some part of who they are or just for whatever reason? We've got the opportunity to identify with people and show love to people. And one of the ways is just eating with them. That simple. Cool, next one. We're just going to fly through these. As I said, it's going to be scattergun and then come into land on a couple of them. Um, daily life imitation. Just remember how the, the uh, disciples would try and learn from the rabbis. They'd, they'd imitate them. They'd watch how they behaved, and then they would copy their behavior, copy their prayers, copy what they said, phrases, teaching, learning. And again, I think that's just a key thing that Jesus does. He taught in the daily life, the daily moments, the spontaneity, as well as the organized and times where he went with a purpose, with an intention to do something. And so what does that look like for us? Um, well, maybe you need to paint a fence. Maybe you've got a job that needs doing. Maybe you've got something more exciting that needs doing than painting a fence. And you know what? Maybe that's actually your alone time and your time with God, and that's cool. But is that just an opportunity to involve someone? An opportunity to just be doing something together, and then the chats just naturally rise up? See, I think often um, we view discipleship or, or someone talking about going and making disciples as doing more. And in some ways it is. But I think also it's kind of an integral, Hmm. it's um, kind of joining in moments or relation, integrating relational moments into our daily rhythms and just being more intentional with what we're already doing because I think we're already doing quite a lot, aren't we? Particularly in Western culture, do, do, do rather than actually what are we already doing and how can we maybe be a bit more intentional about that? And this is a biggie coming up now although I'm not going to linger on this one much. Um, cost. There was a cost to following Jesus. Uh, what, 11 out of the 12 disciples did not die of natural deaths. Um, and Jesus says, come and live life to its fullness. Come and have peace. Come and know freedom. Come and know a good, good father who gives good gifts. And that is 110% part of the gospel message. But there's also a cost at times. And we've got brothers and sisters in the world who are currently scared for their lives because they're standing up for Jesus. We've had people who, uh, brothers and sisters, who have faced ISIS and been asked to renounce Jesus, and they've said no, and their heads have been chopped off. And then kind of maybe scaling it back a bit. Um, I just even think about my recent trip to the UK and driving away from my grandparents' house and seeing my grandparents in the back mirror, just waving and being like, I don't know if I'm gonna see them again. And now everyone's gotta go at some point, but man, that was hard. That was really hard. There's a cost to following Jesus at times. And I think, as, actually, as youth pastors, we've been really guilty of diluting the gospel message. Oh, we'll scare the young people away. 
They can't handle it. No, we'll just make it accessible to start off with, and then we'll maybe talk about the real stuff when they're ready. I don't see Jesus doing that, to be honest. Really, really helpful point with discipleship, um, and this hit me big time when doing the um, dissertation, was noticing that John writes in chapter 6 about, of John, about well, people who were called disciples who turned their back on Jesus still and walked away. And I was like, man, this loaded word, disciple, uh, and discipleship, which these guys knew about in their culture. And John writes about these guys and calls them disciples. And they see Jesus face to face, and they still walk away. And it made me realize that I don't actually have full control over someone's decision as to whether they follow Jesus or not. And man, that was so liberating. Maybe you got this a while ago before me, but that was really helpful. I mean, even just actually being here, I remember one chat I've had in, with someone in particular where I said, do you know what it means to follow Jesus? And I said, are you following Jesus? And they kind of really didn't know what it meant to follow Jesus, in my opinion, and they said themselves that they're not really following Jesus. And I've tried to do it in grace and in love and gentleness, and I felt it was the right timing. The reality is now I don't think they are following Jesus. And yes, we can influence. We can follow God in, in knowing how we influence and, and get alongside people. Absolutely. But at this moment in time, I don't have full control over that person's decisions, and I never will have full control, and it's not on me. Cool. Final two points. So we're, we're coming into land. The plane's coming in, and then we're just going to spend a bit of time on the runway. Totally nicking that Mike Pilavachi analogy, although hopefully I won't spend as much time on the runway as he does. <laughs> Unless we've got another hour. Um, cool. And this first one... Um, is kind of the biggie. Like, if you zone in on one thing out of all the scattergun things I've just chucked out, I'd encourage you to zone in on this one. And this is still coming into the spirit of, I know this is happening in this church. I know it is. I've seen it. And I know there's ways it's happening which I haven't seen. Um, so this is like an encouragement. Let's keep going in this. Let's keep pressing in. Because I want everyone to be really encouraged by this. And that's the call to family. Discipleship is a call to family. It's a call to be church family. It's a call to view church through the lens of family. And it's a call to invite people to join that family. Evangelism actually comes under the umbrella of discipleship. If you think about it, when Jesus said to those initial disciples, the 12, come follow me. They didn't know he was the son of God at that point. And yet they were invited into discipleship immediately. Come follow me. Come meet with God. Come get to know him. Come know his love. Come know what Jesus did on the cross. Maybe uh, later on, just take a look at Genesis. Take a look at that initial command of go multiply, fill the earth. It's a call to family. Does it sound familiar? Go make disciples of all nations. Go multiply and fill the earth. It's an echo of the original command. It's still a call to family. God is all about family. And I think, as Western church, I think um, we can be good at getting church as family in the wider context of aunties, uncles, grandparents, um, second cousins. It's like, yeah, cool, your family, but I don't have to see you during the week. Um, I think we, that's quite comfortable. And actually, there's totally a legit need for that wider family. Um, so like bringing it more local here, one of the things I love actually about SABC is how welcoming 
like you guys are. I've, I felt so welcomed. I know so many other people have been so welcomed when they've come here. It's that general family vibe. It's so special and so important. I think the real um, nitty-gritty, though, part of viewing discipleship or church as family is the whole brothers and sisters, mums and dads. And I think that's where the intentionality kind of goes up a notch. And I want to make, well, make an invitation for us to really just consider that. The whole thing of brothers, sisters, mums and dads. The really close and intimate friendships and relationships. And for some of you, that will be marriage, and that's cool, legit, love it, awesome. I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, and there's, there's this passage in Malachi, at the end of, very end of Malachi, one of the last few words of the Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And I think this is a global prophetic message at the moment. I think it has been for the last few years. Um, I've seen it just pop up, prophetic voices. And it's just, in my opinion as well, clear as daylight, the need for family. So it raises the question, who have you got to really do life with? Who have you got that really sees you? And I realize actually that might raise like a feeling of feeling like lonely. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that this isn't a time of guilt tripping you if you don't feel like you've got people. Quite the opposite. Um, and I'm tugging at desires buried deep in our God-given DNA right now. So let me just give a couple of examples to flesh this out. Um, I was getting, you know, getting on really well with a couple of guys, well, this is about seven years ago now, um, Christian blokes in Bath, and we were just hanging out, and then we were like, actually, should we just start meeting up regularly and start praying for one another and being intentional with this and keeping each other accountable to our walks with God and encouraging one another and laughing when it was time for laughter and crying when it was time for crying. And so we did that. Every week we'd meet up, and at times it'd be like four hours of just chatting, praying, laughing, crying, but it was real, and no question was off limits. So it was proper like hearts on the table stuff. And it was really profound. And, you know, everyone who's a, a bloke here today who who's believes in God and has got a pulse is my brother. But I tell you what, when you do that with someone, you, well, for me, I look at those two guys now and they are my brothers. They are my brothers. That is deep, 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 deep. And I'll give another example, actually, of being here. Um, the other day, someone came up to me and they knew there'd been a few changes and developments in my life. There's someone from the church almost with tears in their eyes, in fact, they did have tears in their eyes, and said, hey, I know you're going through this, and if you ever want to talk about it, then you're really welcome to just come and talk about it. It's probably one of the most precious and beautiful moments of church, actually, I've seen. It was really, really beautiful, an example of how it's already happening in this place. So I think it takes a lot of intentionality. It takes a lot of patience. It takes asking God, who are these people maybe in my life? And don't be weird about it. <laughs> I was weird about it sometimes. I went out to someone actually while I was here in Christchurch and while well, we were just chatting and one thing led to another and I was like, yeah, just feel like it'd be really cool to connect and I basically asked him if he'd be like a dad type figure to me and it was really weird. It was the wrong timing and it was just, it was, oh, yeah, anyway. Um, so yeah, you can mess it up but it's that intentionality without being weird um, and let's not kind of like kill something with overstructure that's meant to be natural and organic. When I was moving here to New Zealand, everyone was talking about the what, 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 what visa, what job, what country, what city, what are you going to do? Very few people actually said to me, who are you going to connect with? 
Who are the people on your heart? Who are the people you're praying for? Who are the people you're already connecting with? So it's a call to the who. And this links in then to the second point, um, key point as we're coming into land. Uh, we're just about to connect to the gate. And that's Jesus sought out disciples. Remember in the Jewish culture, disciples sought out the rabbis. Jesus sought out disciples. So whether it's wondering, who am I meant to be sharing my faith with? Who are you putting on my heart, Lord? Or who are you meant to be connecting with in terms of brothers and sisters? Or mums and dads? Or wider family? There is, there is this part that's actually on us. And again, if you're feeling lonely, I, don't, I really don't want to guilt trip you or like put guilt on anyone, even if you're not feeling lonely. But it's this sense of there is hope if you are lonely. I was praying for 18 months for someone um, to fill a specific type of role in my life that I know God had put on my heart that I needed. 18 months. But he's faithful. Yeah. And these sorts of things take time to naturally and organically come together as well. Seek out disciples. And that, yeah, like I said, that includes people who don't yet know God, people who know God. I'm kind of focusing more on the iron sharpening iron at the moment of Christians walking together. And so the last thing I'm just going to finish with, actually, is, um, again, just probably another example of this. Um, and that's when I was in the UK recently. Uh, I had probably one of the hardest weeks I've ever actually had as a Christian in eight years. It was really, really tough um, seeing family having some very raw and honest discussions about whether I would actually ever go back to the UK, uh, seeing family who are not well, uh, feeling like a nomad in, in my old town, which I'd been in for 24 years, and it was just, there were other stuff as well. I just felt spiritually battered, if I'm totally honest. Um, and within 48 hours of landing back here, I caught up with two key people in my support network, a real brother and a real sister. And man... <sighs> With the wider support network as well and the wider family, I honestly, I don't know where I would be without that support network right now. I don't think I'd probably be able to do this. It was absolutely horrendous, frankly, going through some of the emotions and the feelings and how tough it was. But that's what family's for. Not just actually through the bad times like that, but through the good as well and celebrating and spurring each other on and I've been prophesied over, I've been prayed for and actually someone came up to me, Robin, actually, the Lord told um, Robin to pray for me, like halfway through my trip, and he told me, he came up to me when I got back and said, the Lord told me to pray for you, and I'm here, and I'm, I'm just praying. Absolutely precious. That meant so much. The Lord really cares, and he wants to work through family. Yeah. So, who are the key people around you? What does family look like? Who are your brothers and sisters? Who are your mums and dads? your aunties, your uncles? Who are the people God's calling you to connect with? Does your schedule match up to what he's saying? And how do we bed in those other aspects of discipleship? Band, if you want to come up, that'd be cool. So yeah, it's kind of a scattergun approach. I hope that's been really helpful. I'm still churning from what's been happening in the UK, if I'm totally honest with you. Because if I can't be honest in church, where the heck can I be honest? Um... But that's just some of my heart, and I hope that really helps. So I don't know what people want to do next. Let's just wait on the Lord for a moment. Gives the staff team time to think about what God's saying. <laughs> Thank you, Lord.